Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. First and foremost, I hope you're managing to stay warm. It is absolutely freezing out there and stay safe as well, of course. Uh, today's guest is Laura Rand, who was on the show two and a half years ago. And in a sign of how quickly things have moved and how much has happened in such a short space of time, since last appearing on the show, Laura was appointed uh, Special Advisor to Penny Morden when she was Secretary of State for International Development. Uh, Laura was then also a Special Advisor to Penny when she was at Defence and is no longer a special advisor. So that's how quickly things can change. She's served in two departments. And this is a brilliant insider account of what being a special advisor in the modern era means. Uh, and there's some brilliant details in there about uh, Theresa May, about the relationships that special advisors have with each other, but with the civil servants in their departments, and all sorts of loads of other things. And the importance, of course, of the UK spending 0.7% of its GDP on international aid uh, and how important that is and what the effect of this week's announcement will be uh, that the UK is cutting its foreign aid budget. So there's some, as well as great insidery stuff, um, some important stuff, which is uh, which is always welcome. Um, but this is a really good account of what it's like to be a special advisor, what the job actually entails, the things that you do and don't do, as well as, oh my word, Laura has been to the UN General, General Assembly and Davos multiple times. So there's some really good um, detail about what Davos is really like. And as someone who's never been, and in all likelihood will never go, um, and <laughs> I think that probably goes for most of us who listen to the show, um, although some of you I'm sure have been, um, will go. I, actually, I shouldn't have broadened it out to you. That was unfair. I will certainly never go. So it was... Uh, Although part of me holds out hope, you know, I could do a political party live from Davos. Anyway, that's that's a discussion for another day. Whether you've been or not, uh, Laura uh, 
paints us some some wonderful detail about what happens there. Um, so I began I began uh, by by reflecting on on how Laura's career changed since the last time we spoke, and congratulated her on having become a special advisor, and commiserated her on no longer being one. <laughs> thank you and thank you. Yeah, no, it's um, that sums up Westminster quite nicely, doesn't it? It just um, things happen overnight very quickly. So you were special advisor to Penny Morden uh, when she was uh, at DFID and at Defence, and we'll talk about both of those things. First and foremost, let's just talk about being a special advisor because those of us who've worked in politics are familiar with with what it means. But in a way, you have a certain amount of freedom and different spads behave in different ways. So first and foremost, um, effectively, you're the, the, the minister's right-hand person, uh, the political advisor, uh, and obviously in a world where we have a civil service, for many ministers, the only political member of staff they will have. There was a, I remember the anxiety in the new Labour era that there was this whole new generation of advisors that could boss civil servants about and it was seen as the, politi- the politicisation of the civil service. Um, did you give orders to civil servants and what sort of spad were you? <laughs> I was a lovely spad, Matt. <laughs> no, it is an interesting role and for quite understandably a controversial one and I think often misunderstood and every special advisor has a different experience has a different role and it's very much dependent on your boss fundamentally your department uh you know special advisors in number 10 will have a very different experience to special advisors in departments uh mainly because in number 10 there are many of you you are quite you know it's your your strength is in numbers and i think they are probably more used to getting their way <laughs> and uh although that's although that is to be argued because i think anyway that is that is to be argued but in departments you're you are usually just one of you know two of you maybe three but the treasury has more and your role is quite different and um you know because in number 10 you'll have people who are doing pure policy you know because there's so many they have very targeted areas of expertise that they're responsible for whereas in a department there is it's very it's very varied and again it depends on on each department and each boss how they want to structure things but Roughly speaking, most departments have a, have a communications uh, special advisor and a policy special advisor, and um, but but for that but that can that can vary. And for you, uh, for a period of time, you were Penny Morden's only special advisor. So were you having to do both? Yeah, yeah. Which was um, it is quite uncommon, and it was very stressful (laughs) (laughs) and challenging but um yeah no it it, it, that wasn't by design um well wasn't by design it just took penny a while to to secure um my wonderful colleague lynn davidson who is uh you should have on the show by the way she's brilliant she's like a sister to me now if you're listening lynn and um but yeah she she came from the lobby and just um new communications and political communications inside out so she was she was a huge asset but for nine months as you say i was on my own and um the colleague who i thought i would be joining 
decided to leave after years of service and uh, we had 45 minutes together as a handover which was not long enough yeah <laughs> and uh, yeah so that was that was quite challenging and and also what was quite unique in the situation that I had was that I was predominantly special advisor in the Department of International Development but Penny also had responsibility for the Government Equalities Office which at the time with Theresa May there were many uh, issues going on because it was a high priority for the prime minister. So, yeah, it was there was a lot, and uh, there there's, there was the communication side, and there's the policy side, and I mean, you know, you have to be across both really anyway, even when you're working as a team. Um, you know, if you're doing the comms, you need to understand the policy. And you also need to make sure the policy is well designed so that you can communicate it uh, properly. So they they definitely go hand in hand. And um, yeah, I, I had to do both. But yeah, it's it's you know I knew nothing about I knew nothing really joining <laughs> what what a special advisor was expected to do. You don't get any training, um, and you just have to figure it out for yourself. You know, you have to figure out how the civil service works, how the private office works. Who can you trust when you go to number 10 how to deal with mps it's yeah there's there's a lot thrown at you from day one and what was your relationship like with the civil servants at the department did, did you ever think that they were suspicious of you would they ever kind of treat you as if well you won't be here that long you know we're, we're all kind of civil service lifers and ministers and their spads come and go so you know you, you can you can say what you like now but in the end we'll, we'll get our way so i think civil servants are always right to be suspicious of special advisors and vice versa. That is just the nature of, of the game. And because um, I was on my own, I think as well, it, it, it did feel quite daunting. And I think from day one, I was like, gosh, you know, they might, they know I'm new. Are they going to try and like push something through that I might not pick up on? And so yeah, I was very they? much on guard. Well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, wow, they're good. No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm joking, but um, um, I don't think they tried to do that. But I did. I definitely was um, very much on guard, so I made sure you know you always have to read your things carefully. But I was extra, extra on guard for sure. The civil service in Diffid are very impressive. They are very high caliber, and that is wonderful because on the one hand you know that's hugely important a huge asset for the civil service in the department and it meant that whenever I had a question no matter what it was the private office always knew the answer which was quite remarkable it also means that they're very good at organizing against you if they want to be (laughs) so uh, and they also know that you can only fight so many battles at once especially when you know even even when there's two of you uh to be honest so um yeah, it is an interesting relationship, but the key is to obviously have a good relationship because in theory, you are working towards the same thing. And I think I'd like to think that in our case, that that work, you know, that was what happened. Um, so, uh, mainly due to Priti Patel of late, there's been a bit of a focus on politicians and their relationships with the civil service. Were there ever any tense moments? Did, did you ever have any... Uh, you know, frank exchanges with with civil service colleagues at the department? Well, the most important thing in any job 
you're in is to be civil with your colleagues and that is that's just paramount right and that is very important and uh, I was very lucky that my employee, my my employer, Penny Mordant, uh, took that very seriously, and and she she you know, it's just her character as well. She she's very uh, good to work for, and actually, you know, she's extremely popular with, you know, within the party. I think with colleagues, and um, I think even you know most, you know, she always polled quite quite well. But also, civil servants really liked her, uh, and that you know that doesn't always happen, I guess, but. Um, yeah, and I had lots of feedback from from civil servants. Um, you know, they obviously didn't always agree with her and didn't like some of the, the things she'd asked them to do. But there was never, on you know, on a personal note, there was never any any issues around that. But, you know, it, it it's it's a fra- you know, there's there's so much pressure on government at any one time that it's you know it's um i can i can see why people might lose their cool at times but you know it's, it's i think it's very important that that you try and not lose your cool <laughs> there's also been a, a, a perhaps a, a longer running discussion about the civil service in the system we have and how effective it is for particularly elected politicians obviously dominic cummings had a view of the civil service that at times seemed quite dismissive and quite hostile Having worked in that system, are there any changes you would make? I mean, do you think there should be more explicitly political elements of it, or, or is the balance broadly right? What do you mean? More, should there be more political? Well, do you think? To... Do you think, for instance, ministers should be able to appoint more staff? You know, a, a slightly oh, more, more special American. Advisors. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I actually thought that's what. Dominic Cummings would um, would want actually, and I I remember being quite surprised when um, he didn't really take that route because he was a special advisor himself, and he was, you know, what I've heard, effective and obviously very respected by Michael Gove, and actually also the um, private secretary who I worked with since um, who worked closely with him in Michael Gove's office she spoke very highly of him so I thought you know he's he's clearly um someone who understands the role that a special advisor can play in ensuring that the government's priorities are implemented across departments because number 10 can only do so much themselves you have to rely on your cabinet ministers and by default their, their, their staff to get things across and instead, um, I think we might have hired a few more people, but I expected you know, maybe they'd they try and attract some more senior people into those roles, which I don't think has really happened. And also, I'm not sure that from what I've heard, there wasn't a real sense of empowerment by special advisors no. or even cabinet ministers for that for that matter so anyway that's a whole different story but um i think there is something to say for having more special advisors because you know it's they're portrayed as briefing against each other and all that stuff and you know there is obviously an element of that and it's something that especially during Theresa May's tenure happened a lot but really what they're there to do is to ensure that the manifesto and the government and that is has been democratically elected 
is getting those changes through in a civil service and um yeah i think you know having more people across stuff would help because special advisors tend to be stretched because there's so much going on that you're having to be proactive reactive um it's stakeholder relations you've got to go to all the events and yeah you, you're stretched quite thinly and so i think i would say that there, there is a case to be made for that delivery is something that politicians obsess over understandably because they are ultimately held account for whether these things are, are, are delivered or not and lots of particularly prime ministers say that they feel quite powerless that they you know they pull levers and nothing happens did you feel in the departments that you were a special advisor in that implementing things was quite easy or, or, or was quite difficult? And what it was. <laughs> it's something that the civil service like. <laughs> it's very easy. Yeah. If it's something they really don't like, it's more challenging. However, the um, this is where the leadership of a minister comes in, right? And um, you, this is how... And I think this is, comes back to also being civil, like you have to be liked and respected by civil service and you have to, you know, it, it, it's about respect. As with it in any job, if you if you want your staff to, to do something, you obviously have to bring them with you uh, and get them to understand the importance of it and feel like they're part of a journey. Um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, it, it always helps when uh, I think civil service appreciate you know it's hard for me to speak for them but i would imagine they appreciate a clear direction so uh clarity is the most important thing and also having an understanding that it's you know it's backed by number 10 uh certainly helps and uh, you know th this is why permanent secretaries are very important and you know having com clear conversations with them so that they know what the direction is that's expected from a department so they can um, help implement it. And what of your the sort of working culture then when, when you were a, a SPAD? Uh, because I think whenever you work in politics, you're basically working all the time, even if you're at home, you know, politics doesn't just yeah. stop. So um, only at were Christmas, you, were you kind of well, and even then, not that long. <laughs> did you did you sort of feel, oh, God, this is a far more intense job than I've ever had before? Um, and and were you able to sort of get weekends and stuff like that? No, and and you know, quite the opposite of Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. But you know, <laughs> she, the famous quote, "What is a weekend?" Um, that was certainly something I think special advisors ask themselves, but obviously for very different reasons because they're just working seven days a week rather than not working at all. But yeah, it was unlike I'd ever experienced. Um, I certainly have a high pressured job now as well, but um, there are, I think, clear, clearer lines as to where, where it stops. Whereas that I think is the thing in politics is it is all consuming. It is a way of life. It never stops and you never know what's potentially around the corner. So you're always on guard. And, you know, you'd get, you know, just take take the press, for example. You know, you could have Nick Watt from Newsnight call you at 9pm. 
and you'd have oh my god joe murphy sorry joe um from the <laughs> evening standard call you at 7 30 a.m for um questions so uh, so that's just an example so you know that doesn't happen every night but that is certainly something that if you're at a dinner party if you're so lucky that you'd uh, or out somewhere or trying to go on a date or whatever you you will be interrupted and you can't not answer the thing you can't right. ignore it it's not something that can just wait till tomorrow because it could be on the front pages and that's the constant fear <laughs> and pressure of the job and equally it's um you know, it's, I think it's very important, you know, every special advisor is different, different, but I think, you know, you, you do represent your boss in a way, you know, your actions reflect on your boss and also you can help be their eyes and ears and, you know, you're almost, you know, they have their parliamentary private secretaries and stuff to do this as well. But, you know, if people speak to a special advisor or a minister, they expect that to to be reported back so you it's it's also i think very important to you know you can't just i think every night pack your go go home and just watch telly and um and not interact you have to engage i mean that was my my approach anyway so you end up going to a lot of things and um it's always investments to goes with everything but it's always work even if it's fun there's always an element of work and did that make you change your behaviour in any way? Not not like all the time, but did you think, well, I can't go out as much now or if I am going to a thing with Penny, I'll only have one glass of wine or no glasses of wine? Yeah. Um, I've always been very responsible, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. I know, I know. Um, compared to your stories, your days... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Why I wasn't as bad. I was, I was low down. I could afford to be, and the, it was a different world back then. Yeah, uh, yeah. You say that. I mean, <laughs> you were talking to the prime minister of the nation, so yeah, that's uh, true. But anyway, yeah. I was just an idiot, I think. Actually, <laughs> no, it's it's gold, gold anecdotes, and you know, sadly, I don't have that many of those to share, which I'm sure would make a cracking podcast but um yeah I was always quite cautious about um you know not getting drunk at, at work and but that certainly strengthened in in that role not least because you're just worried about saying something you're not supposed to say so you know you go go out for lunch with a journalist and they'll be saying oh have a glass of wine and you're yeah. like oh really shouldn't <laughs> uh really shouldn't do that so yeah i guess you you are on guard and um but it, it's i think it's more about being careful of what you say and it's amazing how not everyone takes that cautious approach actually and um i think that's anyway but oh, that's most most of most of them do i reckon but i've definitely been in rooms where i've heard people talk about stuff and like oh you really shouldn't you know, you're lucky that didn't end up in the papers kind of thing. I guess that's a character thing, isn't it? Some people have a different like threshold discipline. for kind of... Well, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, yeah. And would that always reflect the character of the minister they worked for, do you think? Were Boris's people Boris-y types? Um, I don't think so, actually. That's a very interesting question. No, I don't think so. But I think there is an element of 
Um, it was never like Penny was like, oh, you, you know, careful what you say. I think she just knew that I wouldn't do that. And it just, you know, it just becomes, you know, when you hire someone, yeah. I think you can obviously, you gauge the character and you know what you're in for. Um, but um, even though we obviously didn't know each other, by the way, before starting, I started working for her. But now, I, well, maybe there's a bit of that, but, you know, fundamentally, uh, special advisors will only go as far as that they feel their boss will let them. So I think in that sense, a behaviour of a special advisor does reflect on a minister. And that was also one of the things that I think during the episode with Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy was always criticised because it's like, well, either Theresa May was okay with it or she didn't know what was going on and both <laughs> don't reflect very well. <laughs> That's right. And so, how, did you, how did you find them to work with? So I didn't, I, I was just after them. So I, uh, yeah, um, I, I get on quite well with Nick, but I, I only met him quite recently. So I, I didn't um, interact with him then. And I also didn't work with Dominic Cummings. So I got very lucky. <laughs> so I've missed the two most notorious um, periods, really, in, in sort of modern talk. I would have loved to have sort of seen it, though, see what it's like. You can just hear, obviously, anecdotes, and I hear lots of them, but... Um, yeah, it's always different, obviously, when you experience it firsthand. Yeah, and what was, um, amongst the, the spads that you were working alongside or at the same time as, did any of them say, you know, what? and what was the general view? And I appreciate different people have had wildly different opinions on both Nick, Timothy, Fiona Hill and, and Dominic Cummings. But was there a sense that, oh, Cummings is better or it was better under Nick, Timothy, or they were both great or they were both awful or anything like that? Well, yeah, there, there are really depends who, who you speak to and I think um because the time with Theresa May that I was there had a lot of uh weaknesses as well and um I think fundamentally from number 10's perspective you have to create an environment where cabinet ministers are empowered to and trusted to implement the policy. Obviously, they have to do it in the way that was agreed with the Prime Minister and in lines with, with the government views. But micromanaging departments is just never a good thing. And that happened with the early days of Theresa May. And also, by the sounds of it, under Dominic Cummings. On the flip side, you don't want departments to just do their own thing regardless of number 10, which probably happened a little bit too much in between Nick Timothy and <laughs> Dominic Cummings. So, you know, it's, it's a delicate balance to strike. And, you know, that's clearly something they're all trying to figure out how to get right. And, you know, who knows this new chief of staff um, might be able to to get the balance right. But it's, yeah. So in that intervening period then when you're there, as a SPAD in a department where number 10 are less centralising and less micromanaging, do you then feel as a SPAD, you think, well, we can get away with a bit of stuff here? And, and did, did you mm. perhaps push it more than you would have done under a, a Cummings or a, a, a Hill and Timothy scenario? Yeah, I think that's probably true. <laughs> and um, 
having said that, I was well behaved. And <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that you'd. Uh, well, I mean, there have professional been professional in any way. There have been instances, um, <laughs> of course, but on the whole, we played with a straight bat, and that was because Penny wanted me to play with a straight bat, and you know, I'm I'm there to obviously serve her and. Um, also, it's not it's not really my nature to just cause um, problems for the sake of causing problems. That's not what um, I get up for in the morning. Um, but yes, there was definitely a sense, I think, that you knew you could get away with stuff. Also, the fact that Penny was a Brexiteer, which the you know the government relied on heavily. They were losing them. They were dropping like flies. Yeah. Uh, you kind of knew that they were very unlikely to sack her. <laughs> that was my view, right? Yeah. And but that kind of went with everyone, whether you're Brexiteer or not Brexiteer, because people were dropping like flies. Every sort of resignation or sacking, losing a cabinet minister was exactly, you know, is, is, a, is a sign of weakness. And the time, the clock was ticking on Theresa May, and that was obvious. And I think I just actually remember thinking, keep to, I kept delaying my holiday plans because I thought oh I think the government's gonna <laughs> gonna fall and what if there's a leadership election and I need to be involved in some way or other or oh, I can't be on holiday when that happens yeah. and I think I ended up delaying it probably by a year <laughs> because oh, it just you know people kept thinking it was going to happen next you know the following week and it, and it didn't but that was I think that was definitely the atmosphere and that's very hard from Downing Street's perspective to then control right so i do feel for them wasn't wasn't easy easy by any means and when all that skullduggery is going on and people like michael gove and boris johnson who are part of Theresa may's cabinet are clearly maneuvering and threatening to resign and then resigning are there spads talking to you are they sounding penny out are they trying to get her to go yeah, there's always everyone's trying to get gossip and stuff. And actually, Penny was on resignation watch for some first six months in the job. I remember, I think Tim Shipman was like a weekly call being like, Is she gonna go? And I was like, I can't say. And uh, I'm hearing she's going, I, was like, I can't say. <laughs> it's just sort of like, just yeah. Um, so when he says he hears she's going, he's just fishing, he's just saying that. I mean, you should ask him that, but I strongly suspect that's the case, but equally. No doubt, you know, but she, she, I think she, she was close to going. Um, At which point? Um, oh, God. Um, when was that? It was around the time that Dominic Raab also stepped down and yeah. um, Esther McVeigh and those people. Um, well, there's so much going on. It's really hard to remember. Like, the it is really hard to remember. Now. It's incredible. Yeah. How much happened? How much drama happened in such a short space of time? Um, yeah. Are you friendly with other spads, or is there a kind of, is there a weird, um, offishness? I guess where you don't want to get too close mm. to the minister's staff. No, I think um, yeah. No, I was friendly with a lot of special advisors, and there is a bond between you, but because the job is so unique, and I think except for people who have been a special advisor I think it's quite hard to probably grasp uh what's going on and you know the pressures you're under and obviously you're there's a sense of camaraderie when you're facing the same identical pressures um because you're serving at the same time 
And, but having said that, there is always, you know, you have to be cautious with them as well because anything they pick up, they will report back to their boss and uh, undoubtedly many special advisors collect gossip to pass on to journalists to keep feeding the beast and um you know in the hope that they then won't write something negative about their boss because it's a relationship they depend on that kind of thing and did the job ever put pressure on like personal relationships with family or friends would they ever say Laura, you you keep cancelling dinner you know this is this is, you know you, we can't go on holiday or we had this planned you missed my birthday you missed a wedding stuff like yeah. that would, would you would your friends and family get frustrated with you at times i have to say my friends are clearly awesome because they were so patient and they're all still there at the end of it which is i'm very grateful for i think they were understanding and a lot of my friends actually know Westminster or have some link to it some way because I grew up in in Holland and you know don't have my my childhood friends or uni friends to fall back on so a lot of people I've in the UK I've met free work some some way or other so a lot of them are linked in some way to Westminster so I think they they had an understanding um I had just started I just met my boyfriend and um so that was an interesting time to juggle all of that but he was yeah he was very understanding about it and but his father had been an mp so he sort of got it um but yeah you just yeah you there's not much of a social life really <laughs> but you know your your the work is your social life and there you know there were amazing things to, to do and to go to and people to meet and so, you know, you're never bored. And some of the amazing places you got to go um, included Davos. That must have been incredible. Yeah, yeah, Davos was 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 incredible. It is an incredible place, and I think it's um, one that I didn't know what to expect. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's really quite remarkable, really. And it's... It's very, in many ways, it's very different to what you see in the news. Okay. Because, and I think the reason for that is there's, fundamentally, it was created to bring together world leaders and business leaders to talk about, you know, best ways forward for the world. And that is quite a select group. Right? So it is definitely elitist, but it's a very small group of people who are actually members or have been officially invited to the WEF annual meeting. Yeah. However, over the years, Davos has grown so rapidly that there are events outside of the official meeting taking place. Oh, it's like, like a fringes. Fringe. There's like, yes, huge fringe activities going on. I didn't know. And that, that I think is what gets a lot of the negative uh you know that's what causes a lot of misunderstanding about Davos so like you'll get these business people there who are probably just there because they want to make business deals and um, I remember overhearing stories about you know the, the cannabis guys about you know how that this little green plant ain't going anywhere anytime soon you know what, what cannabis guys and, yeah and a guy is who I know whether they're Canadian or I don't know but you know there was all these events, cannabis was a big thing that year. I think it was all these events about, 
you know, investing in cannabis and legalization and like you know, CBD products and I don't know, all that sort of stuff. And when you have the cryptocurrency guys and, yeah. you know, there's definitely an element of that. But fundamentally, Davos is, um, I'm, not, I'm not as critical of Davos as I think many people are, because I think it's, you can, you can achieve a huge amount by having all these people in the same place that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Because if you have to rely on, you know, a bilateral meeting, obviously now with COVID, we're pro it's proven everything can be done over Zoom, but, yeah. um, you know, fundamentally if you if you want to meet with people and build that rapport and uh sign an you know mou or discuss things between nations and all that stuff that's that's so critical to diplomacy and economic development you need to be in the same room together and yeah i think what I'm, you know what i'm trying to say yeah. is that if you have to rely on bilaterals that's those are you know everyone is so busy that that just won't happen that much so having everyone in the same space at the same time is very beneficial and also and this is obviously what i got to see and witness in the capacity of you know in relation to international development and the sustainable development goals is that that those are very central to the davos agenda and there's lots of charities and NGOs that are represented who would otherwise not have the opportunity to interact with the private sector and governments so that is that's very valuable and but it's it, it's totally nuts by the way yeah, but it, Davos <laughs> is the sort of thing that I am reassured that exists and people who slag it off if it didn't exist people would say why don't these people all get together and sort of stuff out and then when they do people go this is an elitist you know illuminati type thing um, exactly is it i mean i imagine it to be really picturesque obviously it's sort of in a ski resort and uh, it kind of looks quite festive it, it, i imagine that it's almost like a party conference where all these people are sort of all together and then you see like will i am having cocktails with tony blair and bill clinton chatting to uh, you know william shatner or i don't know Shatner, but yeah. I'm more maybe more contemporary, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie and William Hague uh, chatting to, you know, yeah, not Noel Gallagher, but you know, I imagine that you see some sort of odd mixes of people there. Yeah, no, exactly. For that reason, it is a totally nuts and surreal environment because yes, it's beautiful, and um, <laughs> yeah. So I went this year as well with my in in my new job, but the first first time I went uh, I don't I don't I'm not really a skier I just forgot no. how beautiful mountains are and it, it is just wonderful the wonderful surroundings and also the the train journey towards Davos is just breathtaking the views yeah, um but yes yeah, so at one point Penny was doing a lunch and I was NFI in the room so I thought well I'm going to take this this hour to go up shuttle and take in the views which was stunning but yes you you're right you you do get to see people that you just otherwise would never ever see and say, so, yeah, Will I am. Uh, certainly I saw him this year. And um I was at a yeah, I was at a thing where, you know, in a quite a small space, you're standing there with Bill Gates and Bono and Matt Damon and uh I, I have um uh oh my gosh. What's his name? Well what's the bit is he next The Irish T Shock. Oh, what the current one, Leo Varadkar? No, oh no, the, the formal one. Leo, for, Leo Varadkar, 
uh, he Michael he just Brown. had his fortieth fortieth um, birthday, uh, oh, okay. and so I had a good chat with him, and that was really fun. And what was that he was like? Really funny. Oh, really nice. Yeah, really nice. And uh, yeah, anyway, so it, that, that's all just really surreal. And then equally, you know, when I was there as part of a government delegation, you uh, we had access to the room, which is sort of where meetings can take place between, well, government officials and anyone they want to meet effectively. And that has got to be the most amazing room I have ever been in. What, in terms of the decor or the personnel? Personnel. So I mean, who was in the there? decor it's just like a conference centre. Okay. You know, but you know, it's just like any other conference centre. Like the Radisson but... in Manchester or something. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Just those big tea urns at the back. <laughs> Do they have nice stuff like that though? Is the crockery of a better standard or is it just no. could be anywhere? That's Not quite really. nice. That's a leveller, I suppose. Yeah, but yeah, the people in that room were just So who was yeah, in there? It's just crazy. Um, well, Tony Blair was at the first table to the left. Very cool. Not to be missed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, presidents of countries, prime ministers, and you just got a real sense of, the you know, how international and global it was. So, you know, you had um, people from uh, South America, you know, they, one of them must have been a general or something and had you know, all his medals and uh just you know, very different style politician than you'd find in the UK, and then uh, you you know rather stereotypically, but um, uh, ministerial delegations from the Middle East they just tend to have a lot of staffers around them, so yeah. you, know, you know you can't miss them when they enter the room and and walk past. And um, I think on a personal note, the most exciting. Uh, person I saw quite a few times at, at Davos was because I'm half Dutch, the Dutch Queen Maxima, who wow. is stunning and so glamorous and beautiful. I mean, it's just incredible. She, yeah, she's she's very lovely, and she, yeah, as I said, she's very glamorous. I think that the, the night prior, I'd seen her at a thing with this breathtaking red gown, and just like well like 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 a queen uh, <laughs> effectively and um and then the next day you're seeing her you know at 11 a.m or maybe lunchtime and she just took out this little box of tupperware with cream cheese and started you know spreading her cracker and i just thought oh my gosh you know tupperware a tupperware. queen tupperware i know i mean if that isn't sort of as Dutch as it gets, I don't know. I mean, Dutch people would be so proud of that because <laughs> they're just so down to earth. And it's, was it like, did uh, it look like posh Tupperware? Was it like gold? No, no, but it was very neat size. It was very small. I thought, oh, didn't know they made Tupperware control. that small. <laughs> Porsche control. Well, it is. That's what it is. You, f you fill whatever um, vessel you've got. That's what I do anyway. Um, yeah, that was, that was quite remarkable to see. And is there a kind of night time? Because with party conferences, which I guess is kind of the closest thing, obviously at night, then there's a whole other world to it. Is is there like that? Oh, yeah. for their parties and things and yeah, nightcaps are are huge. Yeah, and actually, my my current job at Freud's Freud's does a lot around Davos. We 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 host what's Davos House and Gold's House, and uh, Ivanka Trump came um, uh, this year, which was quite something. 
Is that and uh, but, but is that? Gods. Do you kind of go, oh, do we want her there or do we not want her there? Or do you just have to be quite <laughs> pragmatic about it? I think having the the daughter of President of the United States is always going to be welcome. Okay. I think that's a fair point. Um, but do people... <laughs> and she is beautiful, by the way. I mean, you know, you see these people in real life and you're just sort of like, well, you know, they're probably all photoshopped. And when you see them in real life, you're like, Jesus, they are so beautiful. How can anyone be so beautiful? <laughs> really? Yeah, really, yeah. Well, I guess that's, that's, that's something. Quite intimidating. <laughs> But they're wearing a lot of makeup and stuff, aren't they? And they're, they're, they're you know, they're, they're groomed within a, an inch of their lives. Probably. They're not Photoshop, but they're, they're getting a lot of help. Yeah. Well, she must have had 18 bodyguards or something. It was, it was quite surreal. Yeah. But no, yeah. Nightcaps are huge in Davos. And I think they ever call them a nightcap. And, and uh, yeah, that, that is that is very, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. There's definitely a lot of It must that. be quite weird, actually, to be like with a global elite and then some of them are kind of getting they're up late partying and then <laughs> the following day world leaders chatting to each other you know Tony Blair going god did you hear about Emmanuel Macron last night <laughs> he got up and did dancing queen on the karaoke I, yeah, him and where I am <laughs> yeah and I you know obviously those people will have to be extra careful and they probably go home quite quite early but um, and and don't get on the table although there's I think there's some story of Boris Johnson and David Cameron at some point being on a table at Davos um and uh Anyway, I'm not. While Cameron was prime minister, I'm not sure. Maybe I've got. Maybe I've got this totally wrong, and it wasn't. Oh, Dallas, but... Doesn't matter. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. So I'm guessing then, mayor of London and prime minister at Davos, and yeah, I think got so. on a table. What? Yeah, mate, well, gosh. Anyway, they, they were spotted dancing, and I seem to recall they. That sounds like uh, a chainsaw going off. Is that your neighbour? That's my neighbour. Oh my god. That's okay. It's just uh, it sounds like um, it? yeah, but it sounds like quite. That's not normal noise. I have a building. That's it. Okay. All right. Okay. So they are building. Okay. I was going to say something about to burst through the wall. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um... So you, as a special advisor, of course, you, you're picked by your minister, but you're appointed by the prime minister. And the prime minister mm. at the time for you was Theresa May. So do you have a meeting with her where she appoints you to be a special advisor? No, there's no meeting, but I'm under no illusion that they do a lot of vetting and her... See, you know, her special advisors, team of special advisors will, you know, be doing a lot of this for her. So I, I know for a fact that my previous episode with you, Matt, was listened to. Uh, to no way. To, yeah, yeah. Not, I'm not sure that was number 10, but it might have been. Um, yeah, but yeah. But Some one, party one of the stuff special advisors. And uh, yeah, just, just to make sure and, you know, they want to make sure you're, you, you can be trusted and. Uh, are and, and do, do you know do, do, are they a fan of the show did they what do they think of the host yeah that's the first thing Theresa May said to me actually she said oh <laughs> loved loved that episode 
<laughs> yeah, he's my favourite. That's what I need to do. I need to start interviewing people who have like prospective spads, and then I'd always be listened to by the prime minister. Yeah, um, but yeah, so there's no meeting with the prime minister, and you know that's understandable. You know, obviously with her senior special advisors, obviously she she will do do that, but for departmental ones, uh, she does not, because you know time is her most precious commodity, and she you know it's not not a good use of her time, frankly. However, what she does do, and I, I suspect Boris is the same, is she, you know, eventually she does want to meet them. And also it's very important, I think, for the departmental spads to help them realise that they are there not just to serve their own minister, but, you know, fundamentally the prime minister and, and Downing Street. And it was quite, a, it had been quite a few months, actually, since I... Um, got uh, to go but I think it was with sort of eight other spads who had joined uh, relatively recently and uh, we got to go to number 10 and have yeah have a, a get together and a meet a meet and greet with with Theresa May which I have to say was a tad awkward really I am surprised that uh, that would be the way. I mean, that is, that must, I mean, it's the most awkward thing to be with an awkward prime minister because in any, in any meeting, there's a power dynamic, but when you're with the prime minister, there's really no one more important, no more important elected person in the country. Yeah. You can't just, it's kind of not on you to make the small talk if it gets awkward. No, no, you'd like to think so. You'd like to think. So, but it's, so, it's really yeah she she's i mean she uh everyone knows small talk is not her strength and i'm sure she'll be the first to admit it as well and her her close um staff members um admit it as well however you know having said that you know when she is in a, a meeting where there's a serious matter to be discussed uh, whether that's with other ministers or MPs or world leaders or whatever, she is very, very good and on point and clearly knows the details of of her brief. But yes, small talk is not her strong point. And it, it, as you say, you kind of go into a situation where you expect them to fill the void because you don't want to be rude and assume you know come in and set the tone of a meeting so you're all sort of there obviously a bit nervous waiting and um yeah it, it, I think everyone agreed afterwards it was just really really awkward and you know she didn't you know for example that what you'd expect anyone to do was sort of start off and you know pretend you have some personal interest in people in the room and uh, and ask you know you know where have you come from what are yeah. you know what are you what are you working on um and there, there wasn't much of that see the game last night see the game last night yeah. watching she did, i'm a celeb she did um she did give a good piece of advice though which was uh what was it it was <laughs> to say <laughs> your piece of instantly forgettable advice i know instantly forgettable advice no she said don't be, you know, make sure to ask the tough questions and no question is stupid or silly enough yes. or trivial enough. And because if you don't ask the question, 
uh, or your minister, but no, nobody else will. And so it's important to ask the questions. And even if it is trivial, then, you know, what's the worst that can happen? No, nobody else is going to know about it. And um, that is a good piece of advice. And <laughs> so I've asked you know, many stupid questions <laughs> since. Yeah, but that's good. I think that's that's one of the best things, in not just in politics, but in life. I think yeah. always ask the silly question because the fear you go, oh, am I going to look stupid? But I, usually there's at least one other person in that room who's thinking the same thing. And actually yeah. it never reflects on you. No one ever thinks, oh, you're stupid. They go, yeah. usually it's a good job you asked. Or, you know, or get a bit of respect, also, actually, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends how stupid the question is. But, yeah, and how you um, word it. If you're like, and Come you... on, where are all the biscuits? All <laughs> 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 right, right, mate. But it does, it often... Sounds like they're coming through the wall with like one of those. Um, <laughs> like, I'm worried you're in a kind of like Iranian embassy siege type scenario. But it also often ends up providing a different perspective or a different viewpoint. And then you just think about it differently, don't you? Yeah. So, anyway, so that, that was very good advice. And she had, I think it was shortly after the party conference and she had given a very good speech. This wasn't the one where she was given a P45 and every, the stage collapsed on her and she yeah, <laughs> needed strepsils, all yeah. of that. I mean, unreal, right? If you think about it, oh, my God. I know. But How? that speech was... That speech was actually... Should I just bang? I'm just going to bang the wall and say... Oh, don't, 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 because... No? Okay. Oh, I don't know, okay. I don't know. No, what, okay. what are you going to say? I'm recording a podcast, yeah. <laughs> So this is going to be edited up. out, isn't it? But oh no, this yes. will all be in because I think oh, this will all be in. Oh, great, yeah, okay, great, yeah. great, okay. Oh, this God. is real, you know. Anyone, this is almost like those, um, you know, people listen to like um, ambient sounds to get them to sleep sometimes. My new neighbours, what a delight! Yeah, so she um, she did do delivered a very strong speech, which she got a lot of kudos for, and obviously that was a great moment. And number ten were very happy. And I think at one of those awkward moments, I am certainly someone who feels the need to to fill the gaps in those situations. And so I, I just recall saying something really cringy, like, well, Prime Minister, you know, what a wonderful speech and well done. And Was everyone else like, teacher's pet? Yeah, exactly. It's just so right, exactly. I just want to say great speech. Uh, and uh, if you ever need anyone to just run some lines past, you know, give me a call. I'm always <laughs> yeah. here for you. But yeah, no, in a nutshell, it, it was definitely awkward. And um, funnily enough, um, in the department, we'd that was the, at the same time that we had a meeting with Tony Blair. And um, I remember running back because I wanted to catch the last bit of that meeting with Tony Blair. And how was that? How did that was... he, he is a lot better at small talk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's odd actually, sort of meeting two prime ministers in one day, even if you I do know. work in politics. I know, yeah, it was quite the day. It was quite the day. And I did joke, I sort of just run back from <laughs> the current prime minister to meet you. Yeah. Um, so then it's hard to talk about being a spad in the Tory government and not talk about Dominic Cummings um, and the sorts of things he wanted to do and the sorts of things he did do. So the spad school thing that he wanted to do and have you all reading Philip Tetlock and all these other people and uh, and the, the changes he wanted to bring in. And it felt like he was, um, in a, perhaps a way, it was sort of undermining of the other special advisors that were serving the ministers at the time. Uh, how, what, what was the reaction to that? I know you weren't there at the time, but you'll have known people who were spads at the time, who may well still be spads now. Um, what did they make of Cummings at the centre? 
Um, I think it really depends who you speak to because as one person put it to me, when you were, if you were in the inner team and, you know, whether that meant you had a nickname or not, but if you were sort of part of, part of a team, you'd probably, um, they'd think very highly of him. He would listen and give you the time of day. And um, I think a lot of them are, are very defensive of him. If you weren't, however, in that inner sanctum, I think it, it, it sounded like it was quite difficult. And I think there was a bit of a sense that they, they felt left out. And I think that is a real shame because, well, you could argue politics isn't a team sport, but it is at its most effective when it is. And I think lots of people didn't feel part of a team. They There was a bit of a culture of fear, as some people have described it. And, you know, you take that SPAD school, or, I mean, it's a bit of a weird name for it, but it's basically the weekly meeting or bi-weekly meeting. And that is an opportunity to build that team spirit and for Dominic Cummings to explain the priorities of what's going on to in the government to special advisors and to answer questions. And also for departmental SPADs to share things that they feel like is worth sharing and it sounds like that just did not happen under Dominic Cummings and I think people just kind of didn't want to be spotted by him or um, they shied away and that that is that's really unfortunate and I don't think that that helps no good governance um, in any way so when you went to SPAD school like <laughs> how much like a school is it and I know you're only going <laughs> once a week but is it is it laid out like a classroom like rows of tables someone sits at the front there's some sort of <laughs> blackboard whiteboard or projector or something and do they take questions do you have to raise your hand well it's in shine laser call... pens on people's backs and throw like <laughs> no. I, think it's markers. What... I think the room where it's in is called the pillar room and, oh i know the one um... yeah it's where they have the cabinet photos yeah it's where where you got really really drunk yeah i've been i think i don't think i've been in that room sober i think i went to number 10 five you know times. it very well yes i do i know um, it too well yeah obviously it serves different purposes for, for spad schools yeah they, they wheel out all the chairs and uh yeah there's rows of chairs and you know, okay so it's quite a grand setting then this isn't just in like one of the office rooms this no because like there's so many spads main... Matt. you have to yeah. fit them all in so how many were talking then at any one point Oof. in those meetings 60 okay is that right? I'm like, yeah, probably. It's quite a lot. And um, yeah, so, you know, you're sat in rows and um, in my days, Gavin Barwell or Robbie Gibb or some of the other number 10 special advisors would would stand in the front and, and share what they had to share. And sometimes the PowerPoint uh, screens were rolled out and <laughs> they'd run through a presentation, which, which did feel a bit spads like a bit like a school but the irony of course in those days was basically they were just filling us in on on the strategy around brexit or whatever which at that point had already been discussed in cabinet and therefore we had all read in the papers already because everything leaked so it was a bit like oh okay you know just playing catch up a bit um but they were, yeah i found it quite useful because especially as a departmental spad, you know, not, not seeking pity in any way, but obviously also I was on my own for quite a long time, but it is, it is you against the department in many ways. And it can be um, a bit lonely 
um, which sounds really tragic, obviously not lonely, lonely, but it's different than number 10 where there's a whole a whole bunch of you so when you get to hang out then with the other department department special advisors who are in the same boat that makes you feel like you know part of something larger so that's always nice and it's also helpful to be able to ask questions that you need asking or um sharing information or you know often there's things that happen cross part across departmental uh across departments so that's 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 a very useful platform and did you look forward to it or did you think oh god i've got to go bad school no or do you think oh i quite enjoy it (laughs) yeah i didn't mind it um it's the most frustrating thing is you can't bring your phones in so that I always felt that was a bit sort of didn't make you feel part of a team because you know you had to go number 10 and then you had to give in your your phones and um stuff is always happening as a spad so like not being with your phone for an hour and a half is quite daunting I, so that that um that wasn't very ideal so that I didn't mind it but it's effectively it's quite a large chunk of time when you could be doing a whole lot of other stuff and so I think it certainly wasn't always optimized um but you know it's as a social animal it's just nice to have a cup of tea yeah, in the pillared room with your colleagues uh, so you know I was happy to go and was there a hierarchy there and if so was it based on department so uh, you know number 10 spads treasury uh, home office foreign office were kind of like they would push their not push their weight around but they were kind of like the senior heads they were seen as like perhaps more important or not and um not really okay like, well number 10 obviously yes. um I don't think so. Otherwise, really, not that I recall. Were there ever um, any people that were you just like, oh, they always ask a stupid question? <laughs> yeah, well, I won't like, name him, though. <laughs> there was a particular individual. No. <laughs> but were the ones where you go, oh, they're just really long-winded. What's the point? And it was just their way of kind of... There's always one. In a group of 60, yeah, there's always one. Be, <laughs> it's not actually a question here. You just wanted to sound off a bit. Yeah, but I think there, were, there was more potential to use it more effectively that I think they probably didn't do. But I mean, gosh, number 10 was under so much pressure on all fronts with Brexit and, you know, constant threat of leadership challenge. So you can't blame them. Um, but I think, you know, if it was a stable government, like I guess the Blair years or whatever, they probably would have used those those meetings uh, differently. Um, I want to ask you about defense but just before then obviously the department that you know and love so well is diffid and it's been in the news a lot recently uh, with rishi sunak's announcement this week that um the 0.7 percent of our gdp that we spend on international development is, is no longer guaranteed you know some people would say well what why are we wedded to this 0.7 percent figure as, as long as we do what's appropriate then you know other departments have their uh, budgets rise and fall why should that be ring fenced hmm Yeah, and you can understand why people um, feel that way. And I think also this year in particular, you know, the pandemic is something that, you know, it's so unprecedented and the the, um, borrowing figures that were released this week are eye-watering. So I I can see why people are sceptical. However... The role that 
international development plays in the UK, um, in, in the UK's role in the world is, is substantial. And we have such a great reputation as a super develop, uh, development superpower, which sounds a bit cheesy, but it is true. We, we are very, very high regarded internationally for um, what we do in the, in the space of international development. And that is down to multiple things. We have the expertise. We obviously have these amazing ch charities as well um, that operate here, but the department has a wealth of expertise, which is just incredible. Um, and the programs that they do are really, really impactful. And um, gosh, I mean, in DFID, you know, some of the teams you meet who are the ones that get sent uh, to emergencies as soon as it happened. I mean, it's 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 really really cool, and it's and it's such a shame that people don't know more about them. But fundamentally, I think in a time where obviously Brexit is slightly uncertain as to what what impact that's going to have on the UK's relationship with Europe and the rest of the world. It's, I think, really important to continue playing a leading role and, and development is such an important uh, asset for a soft power tool. And next year we are chairing the G7, we are hosting COP26. And I think it's just the wrong, wrong time to signal that we're retreating in that space. And I think that's that's really disappointing. And also not to not to forget our relationship with the United States. Obviously, Trump wouldn't have cared. And um I suspect. However, Biden's administration does care about these things and they the Democrats do ask questions about this and and it's something they do pay attention to. And um, you know, some people might say, well, you're still, you know, uh quite you know doing more than most countries with 0.5 and that's right but 0.7 does really send a strong strong signal you're you voted remain uh you make no secret of that you worked for a brexiteer um it's on my cv yeah <laughs> you know work for the remain <laughs> campaign you then work for a brexiteer minister you were working for a, then the government that was delivering brexit um so you're a kind of liberal internationalist tory does this 0.7% thing make you slightly worry about the political direction of the Tory party at the moment? Um, well, it you know, there's a lot of positive noises around COP26 now from, from Boris, which is, which is really positive. And that's something I care about deeply. And my time at DFID, the environment and climate change was something I focused on a lot. And um, <laughs> my colleagues always used to joke, the end of a meeting they just look at me and I was like and climate change <laughs> and something I just always used to bring up and actually a DFID traditionally that isn't something they focused on and they didn't really associate with that with development which I think is, is a mistake and that is something that um, we uh, well Penny and um, by default myself try to change and address and I'm really pleased that Boris is continuing that and I've seen what Dominic Raab is has put climate change as one of his um, top priorities to get the girls' education and some other things. But, you know, that is a very important signal. And so that that fills me with hope. But I do think 0.7, um, it, do, it does link it to the reputation. And I think it would be, I think Boris um, clearly does have a very liberal worldview, which uh, I like and support. And I, um, you know, 
they're saying this is a temporary measure uh, because of these unprecedented um, challenges and, and pressures on on um, on the budget. But yes, I think it's as I said earlier, it does signal to the world what we stand for. Let's talk about your time at defence then, because I imagine uh, 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 an old friend of mine was a spad at defence once. I mean, it just sounds like you're on like chinooks every other day and in <laughs> like abseiling into buildings. And it feels like that's quite a cool place to work. Dangerous, I'm sure, and it can feel quite hairy, but mm. I mean, that must be one of the coolest departments to be a spad in. Like, did you get to see tanks and guns and helicopters? Yeah, Brilliant. yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was an amazing experience, and uh, sadly, not as long as I would have liked it to have lasted. Uh, Penny was the first female defence secretary to come in with two female special advisors. All three of us blonde. It must have been quite a culture shock to the department, uh, but one that they were all um, very positive about, which was which was very nice. Um, it's not an area that I was overly familiar with. DFID I felt more comfortable going into. I'd studied international relations. Um, I Yeah, it just felt like I, I was quite confident going into that department as sort of knowing what's what. Defence, however, I just knew very, very little about. Of course, my boss knew it inside out. She'd been Minister for the Armed Forces. She served, still serves. Uh, she's an honorary commander, uh, which is quite impressive. And um, so she she knew it very, very well. And she knew some of the, you know, the people and the chiefs and, and they all respected her uh, highly. And so they... <laughs> And it was it was actually quite an interesting time as well because there's a leadership election going on. But what I loved about it and just what blew me away was seeing the community, the defence community that I had not been exposed to before. And it is really quite special. And um, when you say defence community, that sounds like it doesn't just mean the armed forces. There's a sort of wider... Well, you know, the civil servants aren't, you know, they're, they're civilians, right? Yeah. Uh, but they obviously play in a very important role as well. So, yeah, there's a bit of a community. But the armed forces, they are something else, really. And, gosh, they're so brave. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the stories, uh, heroic stories, you know, people who've, who've won a military cross or um, and just you know blows your blows your mind and um that was yeah it was a real privilege and yes i did get to fly in helicopters and uh drive a tank although i didn't actually drive it myself but i was in a tank which was very cool and uh yeah even in a chinook uh as well wow. which was um, yeah it was amazing really yeah so that was that was pretty special scary um i i mean <laughs> Trying to board the Chinook, you almost get blown away. So that was um, that was that was actually also just seeing the F thirty fives take off and yeah. land. Oh my god, uh, so much noise, uh, sound, um, so so loud. It, yeah, you definitely feel quite small in comparison. But I think, funnily enough, the most dangerous and sort of scary situations I've been in were were diffid where um you know you see the countries you go to except for Unger and davos and the world bank meetings and some bilaterals uh g7 or whatever you 
you obviously go to the places that are most in need of international development and therefore aren't very safe. <laughs> so where was the, where was a place that was like that that you went? So I think I'd say the place that um, was uh, most interesting. Well, we were actually meant to go to northeast Nigeria, and um, I was a bit nervous about that. And just like a week before we were supposed to go, there was this huge ambush. Um, <gasps> And uh, I think 300 Nigerian soldiers were, were killed oh, and God. they decided maybe it wasn't safe enough to go. And um, yeah. but yes, yeah, so we went to a part of Nigeria where there was one road that is renowned as the road where the most kidnappings in the world, in the world take place. And uh, oh. I had to have one of those trackers on me at all times everywhere where I was actually during that trip. Uh, sort of yeah gps tracker in the so, bra uh, uh, what <laughs> my jesus oh my god <laughs> yeah and sleeping with it at night and remember my room didn't have a lock and i just done this training what you have you have to qualify to be able to go on these to these countries that are high considered high risk you have to do a training course uh where they teach you what to do in in the case of kidnappings or whatever or if if you come under fire and you know how to wear your your um uh, protective gear and your what you call it your uh, body body armor and how yeah. to get in and out of um uh, cars and how to how to operate when you're you know dealing with close protection let's just deal with some of those individually so what is the <laughs> in the event of a kidnapping what's the advice run okay so let's say you run and they, they get hold of you again what do you if you can't run what what then is the advice um <laughs> what's the advice well try and get to the tracker stay calm always stay calm get to the tracker um and i think you know um don't 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 divulge any state secrets okay well yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> but do they do they say like impart information in a particular way don't you just blurt it all out you know sort of uh, no. I think obviously you've got to buy time, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the tracker is the key because that's okay. where people can come and rescue you. So when you say get to the tracker, like press the tracker, it's like activate. Okay, it. so it's not just it's not just on all the time. You have to press the button. I think you have to press the button. Yeah, that seems like but a gosh, bad idea. Surely it should just be on the whole time. Now. And do they yeah, tell that, you that to keep be... it like in your bra? Um, is that the yeah. official advice? I think so. So I where would a bloke keep it? Um, or do they give like male bra? Do they give you like a sort of sports top? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they, I can't remember if they advised me to put it in, in the bra. That's, that's definitely where. Yeah. It turns out that and wasn't I was clutching it in my sleep at night. <laughs> well, it's a safe place um, to put it. You know, it's a good discreet yeah. place to put it. Whereas, I mean, I remember because um, Penny did this undercover tour of East Med to sort of check out the refugee situation and how do you um, mean how do you mean undercover as in well undercover as in we didn't well the government's new come but as in we didn't do any press around it you know, okay. most people would it's quite interesting actually you know most ministers politicians would want the whole world to know about it but we didn't do any press around it and uh yeah she went to libya and i didn't join her for that leg i wasn't probably not brave enough and i, I can't remember if there was a a reason for security reasons I couldn't join actually but I was I was quite happy not not to not to push back but yeah we went pretty much every trip I did I, I visited um well we, we would visit a refugee camp that must uh, have been difficult yeah 
it's you, you see some really difficult stuff and how do you um stuff i mean the, i imagine the feeling is and correct me if i'm wrong but when you're there obviously you just want to help people as much as possible there's only so much you can do actually at the time i mean in a weird way you, you, you must end up sort of feeling quite guilty well or not <laughs> well yes it's very difficult but the programs that the uk does makes you feel really proud okay. and um that's good and, and this comes back to the 0.7 but the 0.7 does do really amazing stuff and i think what's one of the things just that i think was most um difficult but also just really made you stop and think was when you go to these 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 camps and places where people are going through just stuff that's just unimaginable you know probably you know would have not just are they without a home uh women probably raped uh, in many instances and uh men you know face war and uh, it's just un unimaginable stuff right yeah. and then you get there and they see you and they smile and they are so happy to see you and the kids are all running around and playing and it's it really is um yeah it's quite it's very powerful very powerful so why didn't penny wouldn't want people to know she was there um libya and greece um i think there was there's also sensitive i mean greece is a sensitive one because um the situation in the refugee camps in greece um at that time i don't know what they are like now are were really terrible and um uh Anyway, I can't go into specifics too much, but obviously she she was putting a lot of pressure into improving the situation. But diplomatically, uh, obviously that that comes with tensions. Yeah, crikey. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, part I, know, of it, you know. I know. Sorry, it's very, but it's good to very, know. Yeah. It's, you know yeah. I think it always reflects well on ministers that do that. That, as you say, most would want to make a song and dance about it. Yeah, I I, I didn't know Penny before I started working for her and I, I liked the look of her as she said you know in many instances we had different views um uh, but actually it turned out her politics aren't far from each other at all but most importantly I have so much respect for her and my respect for her grew grew and grew every single day which is not what happens to many many special advisors to who then see their ministers work uh, you know from up close and it's quite usually quite the opposite but her stamina and her determination and uh, her vision and uh, anyway she, she she's a formidable politician so for you now already uh, and you're only 30 you've already been a special advisor and, and now an ex-special advisor do you um you, you stood for. You were standing for council last time you were on the show. Do you have parliamentary ambitions anytime soon? <laughs> um, so, I um, tell us I'm a yes. now in a job. <laughs> Is that a yes? Um, you know, it's definitely something I, I consider. Um, and uh, I know we talked about this last time. And actually, interestingly, I think my 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 answer hasn't changed a huge amount. Uh, compared to last time where I can see uh, you know many reasons to do it but also a lot of the downsides that are linked to it having actually worked in government and seen ministers um, and in action and seeing what you can do when you're in a position of in government 
are definitely reasons uh, to to do it. Uh, so those are definitely the pros, but there, there are still many cons. And I think up until earlier this year, I had only ever worked in Westminster. Like I say, I'm, I'm 30. I now work in the corporate world. I'm very lucky to work for a company where the sustainable development goals are central to everything we do. And um, I actually feel, and you know, I've come to realize you can still make a real impact outside of Westminster. And in many ways, I don't miss it at all. You know, I think as a special advisor, you're always hyped up and you're in a buzz and you, you know, you're obviously everything you do matters and you can make an impact and stuff. And you think no job is going to compare to this. I'm very lucky that I'm in a job where I feel um, excited every day about what I do. Um, but to come back to your your question, um, it's I think it's it's something I haven't I, I'm not obsessed with the idea of being an MP, um, and it's something that I'm open to. But I think I want to. It's I'm still you know I still feel like I'm so young. I want to have more experience in the corporate world and learn things and that I think also would make you a better politician and who knows maybe if my career is successful I might think well why would I ever want to put myself through all of that and um, just stick to where I am but I you know I'm open to it and I'm you know still follow Westminster very closely. Well a lot happened uh, in between your two appearances on this show so God knows what will happen between now and the, and the next time you come on. Laura uh, thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure. Well, there you go, Laura Round. Great to hear about the detail of Davos, but also the the, the great work that that 0.7% does for not just proper good causes, helping save people's lives and, and repair um, difficult parts of the world, but it has an effect on our standing as a country as a result. So it's hard not to conclude that by cutting that international aid budget, not only are you reducing the good that we do in the world, but you are reducing our standing as well. Um, but hopefully, hopefully I'm wrong about that. Um, it was great talking to Laura again. And there are certain people you talk to in politics, and I think personality and temperament is so important sometimes. I think Laura's one of those people that just has that natural sense of good judgment. She's someone that when you talk to you feel immediately reassured. You go, you would be a great person to have in the room in a crisis or at any time. But you think that is a cool, calm head who will think about these things carefully. Um, you know, and, and in politics sometimes, I think partly because of the, the time that we've lived through where it does feel like it's been slightly more populist um, uh, and demagogues have perhaps had more of a platform than it feels like they have in, in senior positions. And obviously part of it is the perceptions around uh, Dominic Cummings and the government and, the, and the, the, the style and the tone of the government and the way that they've run it that people have concerns about. But then you talk to Laura and you think there are still so many people blessed with good judgment, with, with calm heads, with analytical brains who just have... You just get the sense that just the right approach to politics, taking it seriously, taking it professionally and, and doing it in the right way, regardless of party. So uh, I think it's always <laughs> good to know, whatever side of the debate you're on, that there are good, talented people. 
um, who, who help guide our politics in the right direction. Laura also does a podcast of her own called What Were You Thinking? Has been uh, Some of the episodes are superb. The recent one with Sir Craig Oliver is brilliant on referendums and reshuffles, so I've put a link to that because if you like this show, it's, uh, it's likely you'll probably like that as well. So I hope you're staying safe, whatever tier you now find yourself in, and if that's easy to understand. Uh, I hope it is for you. Um, and again, just it is getting freezing out there. It's very frosty now. So uh, I we're getting to Christmas very early. So uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> stay warm, stay safe. I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.